Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the narrative game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Narrative Game. Joining me, as always, bringing the narrative and his game, the man himself, Ben Hunt. <laughs> Hi, mate. How are you? Hey, hey, Grant. I'm doing super. Doing super. Fantastic. Now, it is, um, I think, what I would have to call on your behalf a target-rich environment for the, the narrative <laughs> conscious among us, Ben. Nice. Um, yes. And there's a bunch of stuff I want I want to talk to you about, but I'm going to save that for a little bit later on, because what I, what I really want to start with is your latest project, News, which... Um, uh, you know, I go back to a, a, a dinner you and I had in San Antonio, election night in 2016, and you, mm-hmm. you talked to me about what you and Rusty were doing. And it sounded equal parts incredible and equal parts sci-fi and equal parts, how the hell is he going to pull Mad. this off? Yes, and equal yes, parts, yes, exactly. But I know he yeah. will somehow. And here we are. So let's start with that. Let's, let's talk about what news is, its genesis, and what your aims are with it. Sure, sure. And boy, that was, I, I, I keep coming back to that. That night, that was election night, 2016, yeah, right? When it, when it all, uh, yeah, when things all changed, right? Uh, so news is an acronym, and it stands for Narrative Early Warning System. Narrative Early Warning System. And I got to tell you, Grant, this goes back. Gosh, how old are we now? I, this is crazy. This goes back more than 30 years. Wow. This goes back to my academic research. This goes back to my first real book. It was called Getting to War. And it's the idea that you can use unstructured data. You can use the effort that journalists, politicians, central bankers, the effort they make to promote a story arc, to, su- to support a, a narrative. You can measure it. And you can use that as a signal for things that are going to happen. That took its shape, you know, originally as a political notion of an early warning signal, uh, primarily looking at governments that were looking to start a fight, start a war. You know, a big case study on the, uh, the Argentine, you know, junta and starting the, uh, the Falklands-Malvinas uh, conflict. But I found it's like clockwork. Three, four months before a government starts something risky like going to war, they'll start, you can call them, you know, trial balloons. You can call them editorializing. It takes a lot of different forms. Back 32 years ago, all I was able to do was to read newspaper editorials and hire grad students who could read the different languages because you're looking at the domestic media that they're published in. And that's a project that still has a lot of legs. It was uh, the project that we used to say, before Russia made the major invasion of Ukraine, we said and wrote about it saying, this is happening, guys. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not going to be some little, you know, faint here or a little say, no, they're, they're gearing up their domestic public opinion for a full-scale war. So that was the, 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 the genesis of an early warning system as it pertains to politics. Over the last three years, and this is not just a me thing, this is a, a, a project that uh, my partner and I, Rusty Gwynn, this is what we started our company to do, Second Foundation Partners. What we started to do was to build what we call the narrative machine. 
to build a microscope to see the invisible world of narratives. And we've had a couple of, I would say, breakthrough sounds too highfalutin of a word, but maybe not too highfalutin, right? Or maybe not too off the mark. I think we've had a, a couple of significant advances in our ability to build the narrative machine. When I say it's a microscope, that's exactly how I think about it. It's this invisible world of narrative. We're trying to see and visualize that invisible world. The way that you have advances here is really by improving the magnification and the resolution of the lenses we have to see this invisible world. And recently, we had one of these breakthroughs, and it became clear to us that the narrative machine, this microscope that we had built, we had gone past our early stage, which was to really identify when narrative activity is taking place or not. Right. <laughs> right? It, it was, it's a very fuzzy picture. And I love this notion of resolution uh, as, as a way of, of talking about progress here. Because our, our early work here with building the narrative machine, you could see that there's this organism, really the way I like to think about them, of a narrative. And you can say, oh, it's growing now or it's dying now, but it's a very fuzzy picture. You know, um, you know, not, a lot of, not a lot of pixels in that uh, right, resolution right. field. Well, the new development we've had here has, has led to an enormous increase in the resolution of our lenses to the point where we're now just, it's not just saying, oh, narrative activity is growing, peaking, dying off. No, it's, you know, this specific narrative. Right is growing, peaking, dying off. This specific narrative is merging with this other narrative. We're able to see the individual narratives. And that got my partner Rusty's head just whirling. Because our mission, Grant, is, and again, it's something out of of the, the microverse, out of little organisms, right? We think that narratives have become weaponized. We, we think that in the same way you can talk about gain-of-function research in a bio lab to work on a virus, we think there's absolutely that same sort of work going on in every big tech and big media and big political operation today. Ways of actually tailoring the words to have the desired impact on us, the reader or the listener today. Yeah. We want to build a vaccine for that. Right? We, want, we want to inoculate the world against what we call fiat news, weaponized narratives. We have lots of phrases for this. Yeah. But, but, but we all get the idea, right, that, that, we, that words are being used against us, that words are being used to shape and mold our behaviors in a very calculated fashion. Hence the idea of a narrative early warning system. What are the qualities of that? Well, we want it to be able to be something that we can use to run analysis and publish about different media outlets. To what degree are they promoting certain uh, uh, narratives? We're not getting into fact-checking, right? There's none of that what we're doing. What we're doing is, here are the hallmarks of a weaponized narrative. And if you, the reader or the listener, can have that little ding, ding, ding of oh, the words you're now reading are part of a, yeah. of a weaponized narrative, it gives you the critical distance, we think, to give a bit of inoculation. It doesn't mean you're not going to agree with them or disagree with them. It's just that 
you get a little bit of critical distance. And that's what we're trying to accomplish with the news program, the narrative early warning system. Well, this, I want to dig into this because it's um, sure. a piece you wrote on Epsilon Theory that you published, I guess, what, a week, 10 days ago, maybe? Maybe two weeks yep. ago, possibly? Yep. Was, as always, I think it was called 15 Faces of Fiat News. And it was just, I mean, I hate to say it, but because I sound like a broken record, but just, you know, typical Ben and Rusty brilliance. It was fantastic. And it was a, it was a long piece that went into great detail. And I would urge everybody listening to this to read that piece because it, it lays out in great detail what it is you're trying to do. And, you know, Ben, it's funny, you said to me, and, and this came up on Twitter a couple, a few days ago, someone mentioned something, and I replied that ever since the day you said to me, everything you read, you need to say, why am I reading this and why am I reading it now? Just that one thing from you has completely reshaped the way I read the news, the way I see the world around me. And so what you're doing with this narrative machine, the way you're building that, normally you'd say to yourself, well, how is it possible to fight the kind of weapons that are being used. If this language is being used against us without our knowing it in ways that we don't really understand, my own experience tells me that you only need a little bit of exposure and you just need that, why are you reading this, why are you reading that? You just need a filter, simple as that, to be able to counteract a lot of this stuff. And I, I, I mean, literally, I read the news in a completely different way now than I did before you and I had that conversation. And I, and I said it on Twitter and I'll say it here. I'm extremely grateful to you for that. Well, thank you, Grant. So let's dig in a little bit to, to some of the, sure. those 15 faces that you've identified. And I, there are ones that I definitely want to ask you about, but I'd rather come at it from your side, of which are the most important for people to understand. And then if there's any that I want to dig into afterwards, sure. I'll, I'll ask you. Sure. Well, first of all, you're right about what it means to be inoculated what it means to to have a bit of, I call it critical distance. Because when I say, ask yourself, why am I reading this now? That's the goal here is to to make us all a critical thinker, a critical consumer of the steady diet of weaponized narratives that are force-fed to us. Critical doesn't mean criticizing. Critical means, you know, it's like, you know, critical race theory, right? It really is. I mean, that, that adjective, critical, is one of, of maintaining a distance of looking at something and not just swallowing something whole. It's chewing your food carefully. There you go. There you go. <laughs> chewing your food carefully. And, and that is exactly the goal here, Grant. So, so for, for you, and I think for a lot of people, that just basic principle of ask yourself, why am, why am I reading this now? That's enough to give you that pause, which is the key here. Just giving you a little pause. The issue, and I think this is true for us just as human beings, is that when something is the water in which we swim, phrase I like to use, of the David Foster Wallace story, right? And when it's the water in which you swim, we don't really see it. We read the words, we hear the speech, but we don't step back and we don't examine the, I'll call it, the construction of the words that were written for right, us, the construction right. of the speech that we just heard. We take it at a face value that does not allow us to step back and look at the act of speaking to us. Why would somebody want to speak to us? The act of reading something that someone has written for us. Why would somebody write something for us? And it's, I find at least in, in my life, I, I can give you, you know, a couple of good examples of this. Until you are sensitized to something, like a like a vaccine does, right? Mm-hmm. It sensitizes your immune system. 
That's what we want to do. We want to build our own natural immune system to this stuff, stuff that we don't have a big natural immune system to. No, right. So a couple examples from my life, right? So, you know, back in a prior life, started a company, software company, worked with construction equipment. Now, until I started this company, I, I never saw the construction equipment that's all around us. But now that I've been involved in that industry, I, I promise you, look out the window. If you're in a town, you know, unless you're out in the woods, look out the window. And I promise you, you will see an item of construction equipment mm-hmm. that somebody has rented from a construction rental spot somewhere. It's crazy how much construction equipment is everything. We just don't see it because it's just everywhere. Yeah. Example number two, homeless people. Homeless people are everywhere, Grant, and we don't see them because our brain, our mind ignores them. But once you're sensitized to it, you will see homeless people everywhere. That's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to give that little pause, that little break that forces you to recognize, aha, these words of weaponized narrative are everywhere, and here they are right in front of me with mm-hmm. this article that break. So the 15... 15- 15 faces of fiat news. Yeah, and the 15 kind of sections, I guess, that you break the piece down into, I mean, they're all fascinating. And I I do want to get you to talk about the ones you think are most important for people to understand, but but let me just kick you off with the missionary statements and the missionary warfare, because the missionary is something that you've spoken about on this podcast before. We've talked about this, and it's, um, again, you know, it's the man behind the podium wagging his finger telling you what to think. But you had a chart in there, which I think was, was it the density of, missionary statements that you that yep. you'd plotted. Yep. Yep. And it was exactly extraordinary. Right. It was an extraordinary chart showing and I think when you see that chart going bottom left to top right, almost 45 degrees, um <laughs> it, it, it's given the context it's in and knowing what I know about what you've taught me over these last few years, it was such a powerful chart to me because you realize what's happening here. You realize that missionary statements are necessarily for the people making them becoming more and more prevalent in our lives. And you get a sense of, for me anyway, other people might read it differently, but I get a sense of how increasingly precarious the situation must be getting if we are starting to see this many missionary statements of people telling us what's important to think. So, so just if you, if you can recap the missionary idea and, then, and talk about that chart and, and what it tells you, because I was fascinated by it. You bet. I'm going to preface all this by saying that it's comprehensive with 15 different aspects of fiat news. You know, what we call fiat news it's, it's the idea of presenting opinion as fact. It's, again, what we mean by weaponized narratives. But it's so comprehensive because my partner, Rusty Gwynn, wrote this thing, right? And he's the most comprehensive yeah. person I know. It's crazy. But I, I'm so glad you picked this one of the 15 called missionary statements. And I'll describe what we mean, why we, you know, missionary, why are we talking about that here? But Let me say that these missionary statements, these are the most bold, obvious, direct use of telling you what to think of all the 15 different categories we've got here. Some of these categories are, it's a little bit sly, right? You know, they don't want to hit you right over the head with, you know, telling you, you know, how to think about something. So they'll catch it in, you know, experts say, or it'll be in some, you know, unattributed you know, source of expertise. And, and we go through all of them. There are about, again, 14 of them. And then we've got missionary statements. So missionary statements are just very direct. Missionary statements are literally, here's how to think about X. <laughs> They're the explainers that you would see on a Vox or, uh, you know, one right, of these right. new sites. It's, it's one of these, 
here's what this really means. Subtext, you who are not smart enough to figure out what it really means without being led by the nose for us to tell you what it really means. And we, we call them missionary statements because in game theory is at the heart of, I think, what drives all of these. There's the famous example of, of the, the common knowledge game. Again, this is at the heart of what we write about with epsilon theory. We've been writing about this for a long time, for, for, for many years. But for those who are new to it, the common knowledge game is the way in which common knowledge develops and then the way it changes our behavior. Common knowledge is not public knowledge. That's actually, it could be private knowledge. It could be something that's not really ever said out loud. Common knowledge is what we all know that we all know. And the, the, the phrase missionary statements comes from the classic example of a common knowledge game. And that classic example goes by the, the story of the green-eyed tribe. I've, I've told this story to you before, Grant, but if you want to, let no, me tell you it again. again quickly. Let's hear it again. Right? Yes, please. Again. All right. So on the island of the green-eyed tribe, blue eyes are taboo. Everybody has green eyes, or you're, everyone is supposed to have green eyes. And if it so happens, though, that you have blue eyes, well, my goodness, because blue eyes are taboo, the next morning you have to get in your canoe and you have to leave the island forever. Fortunately, for anyone who does, in fact, have blue eyes on the island of the green-eyed tribe, uh, there are no reflective surfaces on this island. So there are no mirrors for you to see the color of your own eyes. And blue eyes are so taboo that it's forbidden to even make reference to them. So nobody, if you have blue eyes, there's no mirror for you to say, oh my God, I've got blue eyes. And also nobody's going to tell you, oh, Ben, you've got blue eyes because it's just, we can't even, you can't even even make reference to it. So life goes on very peacefully with this tribe. Nobody has to leave the island, even though there are some people there who have the blue eyes, who are the, the taboo attribute. So everything is all nice and happy until one day the missionary comes to the island. And the missionary, is he's not party to these, you know, notions about taboo. And so he gets up there in the, the middle of the village of, of, the, of this island of the Green-Eyed Tribes. He looks at everyone. And he says, hey, at least one of you has got blue eyes. Here's the important part of this. He made this statement so that we all heard the statement. Or more important, we believe that everyone heard the statement. We hear that everyone heard, at least one of you has got blue eyes. The missionary didn't point out the person with the blue eyes, but said at least one of you has got blue eyes. So the question, as this is typically posed in kind of logic and game theory classes, is um, what happens next? What happens next? Well, what happens next is that the next day, the the person, if there's, let's say there's one person with blue eyes, let's say it's me. So the next day, I say, he said, you know, at least one person's got blue eyes. So I, I, I've seen everybody else in the village and I, I know that they all have, have green eyes. And um, when I, when I, since I've seen that everyone else has got green eyes, I know, oh crap, I'm the one with blue eyes. So the next morning I get in my canoe and I leave the, I leave the, I leave the island. Right, so that's the easy case, where only one person has blue eyes. He or she's looked around, sees that everyone else has green eyes. The missionary said at least one of you has blue eyes, so mm-hmm. darn it, it must be me. What happens if there are two people with, with blue eyes? Well, 
I wake up the next morning, I've looked around and I know that there's another person on the island who's got blue eyes. And so I wake up the next morning confident that when I go to our kind of village central, that that one person who I know has got blue eyes will have seen that everyone else has got green eyes. And so he will have left. And imagine my surprise when I get there and I see that that fellow who I know has blue eyes, he's still there. I think, well, how can that be? He knows our rules. He knows how taboo. Oh, no. The only possible way that that person could still be here would be if he looked at the rest of us and he saw that there was somebody with blue eyes. But I've looked all around and I know that the only other person with blue eye, it must be me. So if there are two people with blue eyes, then on the morning of the second day, both people shove off on their canoe. The answer to this is that for any N number of villagers with the taboo blue eyes, they will all leave simultaneously on the third day. Right. Why is this interesting? It's interesting for a couple of reasons, right? Because we live in a world of this sort of taboo. We live in a world of behavior. We live in a world where you don't want to be the odd man out. And I'm going to use a market analogy. You see this a ton in markets, right? Where a missionary, a central banker or someone like that will make the statement, we're going to have a recession. And if that's something that's taboo, if that's something that you're offsides for, right, you believe, oh, we're not going to have a recession, then the, the way this plays out is that, and this is, what I think, what you see in markets, is that after a missionary statement, there'll be a period of time, and then there will be a big sudden move in markets. Right. A big sudden move in markets. And everybody was like, oh, my God, where did that come from? And what it came from is the way that common knowledge goes through a system the more people who share that taboo common knowledge, oh, there's not going to be a recession. Oh, my God, there's going to be a recession. If there are a lot of them, it can take a little bit of time for that percolates, and then they all leave simultaneously. They all go over to the, uh, you know, they all leave the island with that viewpoint, right. and right. markets go way down. So we see this all the time in the way that there'll be a, a missionary statement, time will pass, and then there'll be a big punctuated move as People, you know, take themselves off, off the island. That's right. the kind of direct marketplace of this. We call them missionary statements because they're used, these used to be pretty darn rare, right? That's what our chart is showing. It used to be kind of reserved for like a president to make yeah, a big yeah. special event and say, people, people, you know, come around. <laughs> Let me yeah. tell you, I need to tell you what's going on and, you know, Here's how I think we should be thinking about this. It's, it's the address from the Oval Office. Right? It's, it's the, the address from yeah. the Oval Office. And now it's every Tom, Dick, and Harry is saying, here's how to think about, you know, my explainer on blah, blah, blah. That's what we're showing here. And it's the most, it's the purest, most direct form of weaponizing a narrative. Frankly, I didn't see, think we'd see it this pronounced. Yeah. But we do. Right, we absolutely do, and it's the sort of thing that should immediately give you some sort of pause when you see it in your media consumption. The other one that jumped out at me, Ben, was was the bogeyman because this is something yes. that I, th I think we all kind of understand the concept of the bogeyman. But I think, and I think anyone that's kind of read history and understands how kind of we, I'm using air quotes, I'm stumble into wars. We mm -hmm. understand how bogeymen are very, very useful constructs. So how is that playing out in, in our modern day world? Because it, it, again, it feels as though 
we're starting to get more and more bogeymen thrown at us more and more aggressively by as many sources as you can count. Yeah. The the bogeyman, the creation of this other and the association of an argument with a bad guy is one of these things is also we're just seeing it skyrocketing in, in, Mm. in, in use. We just saw it the other day where... Uh, it was Matt Iglesias. He was he was talking about there's this antitrust effort going on. Takes a lot of forms. You know, part of it is looking at the acquisitions that Amazon makes to stifle competition and create this behemoth that I think is very very damaging, frankly, to small L liberal society, right? Yeah, like yeah. like most trusts are. And he was making the argument, it was, it was something like Amazon is trying to acquire this, essentially a, a pharmaceutical uh, delivery mechanism. And of all people, you know, Josh Howley was being critical of this acquisition. And so because, yeah, I, I think most right-thinking people would say, oh, you know, Josh Howley, oh my God, <laughs> right. you know, are you kidding me? But no, it, the, the argument then becomes, you are consorting with very bad people if you are opposed to the the acquisition that Amazon is making. Josh Howley is opposed to that acquisition too. Need I say more? <laughs> right? That's, that's the boogeyman. And, and there's so many different forms of this, right? From the you are you're consorting with bad people if you, you know, opposed to Amazon acquiring, you know, their pharmacy business. You know, you see. You know, George Soros is used so much. Bill Gates is used for everything. If you've, yeah. if you've ever, I bet you wrote this article using a Microsoft product, didn't you? <laughs> you know, it's not yet to that extent, but it's pretty darn close, Grant. It's pretty darn close. Again, it's one of these where, you know, you'll see this kind of throwaway line about Soros or the Koch brothers, you know, yeah. dark money from the Koch brothers. And that's, that's all you need to say. Right, just say that and say, well, you know, nobody could be for that. You, that's that's the side of evil. You know, there's that that Godwin's law, right? That you know, when, you know, when somebody starts comparing something to Hitler, it's like, oh, come on, really? Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> that, even that's happening is so much more. Literally, everything becomes you're a Nazi. Yeah, it's, a, it's you know, so you're, true. You're a Nazi, and and it's amazing how this has taken over so much of our conversation. Just amazing. But it, but it's happened so fast, and it's happened in a way that, as you say, we've you you. I kind of think of it as a gradient, you know, with Nazi on one end of it, and a time when no one's compared to Nazis because we always we all realize how ridiculous yeah. that is, unless you're an absolute yeah. Nazi. But there's yeah. a gradient, and it. But this time it seems like it's not a smooth gradient. It's three or four step changes in color, and we get to the other end of the of the gradient, and I, and I find that. Extraordinary, and I'm curious as to why we seem to be. Is it urgency that's moving us because we have to get to that side of the gradient fast because things are unraveling fast, or is that the yeah. dog and the other side is the tail? No, I, I, I think as in any sort of addiction, one writes like this in order to create that sort of dopamine or norepinephrine chemical response in your brain, and like any sort of stimulus response effort, you've got to provide greater and greater stimulus to get a similar response. Every word of, of um, affect like this has been cheapened through overuse. Mm-hmm. 
And the terrible part about this to me is that when there are actual Nazis running around, you've lost the ability to describe them. Yeah. When everything is a Holocaust, when everything is an insurrection, when everything is treason, then nothing are those things. Yeah. It cheapens the real thing because our sensitivity to these words has become so used to them. It's it, it's so damaging, Grant, and, and, it, and it's precisely because it has become so commonplace. It doesn't stop. Quick example, right. I, you know, we, you know, my website, we used to, we used to run some ads because we thought, oh, well, you know, uh, we've got a fantastic demographic. We'll, I think, be able to charge a little bit of a premium for the, for the, for the ads we run. And, you know, we, we'd like to give an alternative for people who don't want to, you know, pay a subscription and the like. We made all this effort. Now, here are the things, you know, that can't get advertised. Here are all the hot words and all the stuff. Or else, you know, you turn into Zero Hedge and the the ads on Zero Hedge. Well, the race to the bottom for these sort of ads and and what get paid for ads, it's astonishing. I mean, we'd get whatever we'd get, a quarter million, third of a million viewers on a month. And we'd get like a couple hundred dollars in ad revenue. And then we realized, what's going on? Well, there are a lot of sites that they're getting 50 ads on a page, right? Mm-hmm. There's just basically a page of advertising and this, this enormous race. And so the, it's more and more ads for less and less per ad revenue. And to keep up, if that's your business model, you just swamp the reader with ads. Yeah, It's crazy, Grant. It's crazy. But that same sort of, of devaluation, which is why we came up with this idea of fiat news in the first place, right? It's, it's like fiat money. It's like, you know, it's like Gresham's law, but it's applied to information, applied to news. Gresham's law, of course, being that bad money drives out good. It's the same thing with, with information and news. Bad information drives out the good. Yeah. That's what's happened to us. Well, so, and again, I, I want to make sure that everybody goes and reads the 15 Face of Fiat News because it's, it's important to read the whole thing. But before we move on to something else I want to talk to you about, how should people think about this and what little things can they do? Uh, so we've already covered that first one that, say, was such a revelation to me, but is there anything else that people can do to inoculate themselves to any degree against this problem? Is, is it just vigilance or, or are there little tricks they can do? Uh, vigilance is one thing, right, just to maintain that critical distance. The idea here is to launch this basically so it runs on your browser. It's like a program called Grammarly that can check your grammar. Mm-hmm. Yep. This can check what you're reading for, the signs of these aspects of fiat news. What I'm really gratified about, Grant, is we've had a number of inquiries from news organizations and authors and writers. who are saying, you know what? I'd like to be sure I'm not using this kind of language. I want to use it in the creation process so yeah. that I don't fall prey to that. And that makes me feel great. Yeah, I said, well, yeah. Absolutely. As a content creator, we've got to, to watch out for, for falling into these traps. Sure. As, as, as well as being a reader. But I'll tell you the other thing, Grant, which is in stepping back from the whole act of consuming content, <laughs> right? Is to put the phone down. Yeah. Is to have a conversation with an actual live human being. Yeah. An actual live human being who doesn't treat you as a means to an end. No, there's a thought. There's the thought, right? Huh? And it's, God, it's so fucking hard to break. I, I, I've been saying this, and I, it's my confession, but I'm holding up my smartphone now, 
people are listening, this is the last thing I look at when I go to sleep at night. It's the first thing I look at when I wake up. Not my wife, my smartphone. And how freaking pathetic is that? Yeah. But that 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 is the life now. And my goal is to break that addiction and that habit. And I think that's what we all have to do. We have to have more conversations with the actual human beings in our lives. Yeah. That's that's the real inoculation. No, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it, the, the problem, I guess, in the short term is it gets harder and harder because, to your point, we've gotten out of the habit of having those conversations. Yes. And, and we get triggered by them. People tend to struggle to have those conversations because they're not used to being in a fluid dynamic with someone where opinions are being aired that might challenge them. And there's a way to challenge those assumptions in a way that, that actually is good for everybody involved. And we've, we have gotten away from that. We really have. We really have, Grant. And it's, I, I have it in my own life. I think we all have it in our personal lives. And it's, it's just the power of that dopamine, norepinephrine response. Yeah. It's, uh, it, there, it's, it's something that hits us right, right square on our brain chemicals. Yeah, and that's, that's why we've got to make these extra efforts. Well, I, I, I remain committed to the cause and at your disposal you. should I be able to help in any way get this out there? Because I, I say I think it's it's such an important initiative, Ben, for, for everybody. And congratulations on, on getting this amazing thing of yours to the point you have. And, and I, Thanks. I can't wait to see and and I want out. to make one other kind of announcement that goes along with this. But uh, a PAC member, you know, as we call our ET group, uh, made this very generous donation to Vanderbilt University to establish a research center, the Applied Research Center, the ARC for Narrative Studies. And so uh, that's getting off the ground and we want to raise a lot more money for that. This is not a for-profit kind of thing. This is, we really do want to, that's a mission to inoculate the world against weaponized narratives. Sounds again, pretty highfalutin, but there you go. You know, it's a it's a it's a noble cause. So I think you're entitled to be highfalutin. I know you're not prone to be highfalutin, so I, I think we can let you. I think we let someone slide. I think it's a noble cause. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, so listen, um, before we wrap up, it's just one thing I wanted to talk to you about in a specific. Um, given everything we've just talked about in terms of the abstract, the reframing of <laughs> recession. I knew I was going to ask you about this. I know. Uh, I, I'm fascinated by this because when, as I've watched this kind of develop over the last 10 days or so. I just keep hearing you in my head. Every every article I read about it, everything I see on it, everything, every time I think about it. So just talk to me about reshaping the recession narrative, both from what's attempted to be being done and also what you've thought as you've watched this thing unravel over the last 10 days. Well, I think we all know what's attempting to, to go on, right? Is to say, no, we want to create a definition of recession so that you don't use that word under the idea that the word has more power than the fact of six months of contracting real growth in the U.S. economy. Yeah. And there are a couple of different dimensions of this that are really striking to me. The dimension that's not terribly striking to me is that there is this effort being made to not use that word. Because it's a it's a loaded word. It's a politically useful word to your opponents. It's a politically inconvenient word for you. But I have been flabbergasted by the amount of resources and effort that has gone into not only pushing out this this idea that you must own 
only understand a recession through the lens of employment and what the NBER says is a recession. Oh my God, if you if you deviate from that perception of what a recession means, you are the devil. It, it, I, I can't tell you how bizarre it is. The effort has been made. And it, it offends my sensibilities in so many ways because I consider myself something of a connoisseur of, of, of narrative. And it offends my sensibility in a couple of ways. Let me kind of go rattle them, them, them off for you. The first way it offends my you know, sensibility is that it becomes a caricature of the expert say approach, right? When you have to have Paul Krugman go on to, you know, Brian Stelter show or whatever and proclaim on CNN that, no, this is not a recession. My God, it's not a recession. It's like, it's, it's a joke. It's just, it's just a it's self-parody to a degree that is, if you have an, an, an ounce of critical thinking, you realize you're just, you're beclowning yourself. You are making just an <laughs> utter fool of yourself. So it, it, it offends my sensibility that, that anyone could think this would be effective. The second way in which it offends me as a connoisseur of narrative is, oh my God, the, the, the way to approach this is not to fight it, right? And not quite to embrace it, but you can handle it like Jay Powell did. You can say, well, you know, these numbers get revised a lot. Certainly we're, you know, there's this issue of the, the contracting real growth. Let's talk about that. And you just, you, you, don't, you don't fight it in this ham-handed way. You just kind of ooze your way over it, and it no longer becomes a topic. Yeah. Look, uh, are, is the RNC going to to run articles about a recession? Fine, go at it. They, they, it's not like there's some absence of you know things that they can say or will say, whether it's true or not. It there was such a much more elegant way of approaching this from a narrative point of view. It seems impossible to me that anyone could approach this with such a ham-handed. And third, this is what really bugs me. I just want some competence at governance from this administration. I, I, I think, sorry, this is me coming out here. You know, the Trump administration is an absolute disaster. I, I, it, it just a disaster, just just so horrible. And and all I need, all I need right now is some simple competence at governance. That's all we need. And instead, we get this crap. This, this is what we get? Are you kidding me? Oh my God, Grant, I, call it sunshine, call it rot, call it whatever you want to do. We have six months of declining real growth in this country, yeah. and that's meaningful, and let's talk about that and not wage narrative World War III over this Potemkin notion of is it a recession or not? Oh my God! It's just—it's just this combination of incompetence with supercilious. I'm the economist, and I will tell you what it is. It—it—I can't believe that in the year of our Lord, 2022, people are people who have successfully mounted national political campaigns are this politically incompetent. Yeah. I can't believe it. But when I look at this, because I, I, I'm the same, I'm just bewildered by it. But I'm torn between. And I don't know which is better or worse, but mm -hmm. A, are they this desperate that they are down to the Jedi mind trick now and that's that's where mm -hmm. we've reached? Or do they have the evidence to support that they might be able to get away with this because we've become so dumb at understanding what we're being told? And I don't know which is worse. I don't know which it is, but either of those being the reality of it terrifies me. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I think that's what scares me most of all as well, which is that there is no governance anymore, that that word doesn't even mean anything, that it's purely what we talk about in a lot of Epsilon theory notes, the cartoon of governance, mm-hmm. cartoon in the technical sense, an abstraction of an abstraction. Right? So you have the abstraction of governance, and then you have the abstraction of the abstraction, which is the word in which we call it. And so that everything is at this cartoon level, recession, not recession, all the ad spending, all the word, all the energy is on the cartoon level, not even at the abstracted level of that being, okay, the abstraction is the abstraction of our U.S. economy is that not on a nominal basis, but on a real basis, our output has declined for six months in a row now. That's a big deal. Yeah. Let's talk about that. That would be where I think most policy conversations should be held at that abstraction, that you can't talk about those million different real economic inputs. You have to have an abstraction in order to have a policy conversation. But instead, what we have is a conversation about the abstraction of the abstraction, the cartoon. You don't just see this in politics. You see this in sports. Uh, you see this in markets, where the conversation is not about an abstraction, which is a corporation, let, let's say, but it, it's an abstraction of an abstraction. It's that three or four letter ticker, mm-hmm. right? We're going to have the conversation about that as if that were a thing. Yeah. And, and this is what pervades our society. It's, it's we're, we're, we're no longer focused on an abstraction, which I, I think, again, is where most policy, and that can be an investment policy conversation as well, should be had. But we have these conversations around abstractions of abstractions of cartoons. And so, yeah, Grant, I do worry that this is the apotheosis of that, right? That, that, that it, here we are and, and, because we're not inoculated against this, millions upon millions of people will have behaviors and that are based on their perception of these cartoons. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's pretty damn depressing. All right. Well, listen. Um, I was I was hoping to finish on a more upbeat note, but it's they're getting harder and harder to come by every day. But listen, Ben. Uh, again, my thanks to you, and please pass on my thanks to Rusty for for all the amazing work. And just uh, just one more time, let people know where to kind of follow this as it develops and and stay on topics. I I really think, honestly, it's such an important initiative. Well, it's Epsilon Theory, and that's on Twitter at Epsilon Theory. That's EpsilonTheory.com. We've put a couple of these recent notes completely outside the paywall. You can read a couple of our notes every month anyway, but we've put these completely outside the paywall because we do want a lot of people to look at them. And that is the good news, Grant, right? It's that it's not just us. There are tons of people doing projects from the bottom up that are not in either the blue camp or the red camp that are not phrased in that way. They aren't fact checking. They're not trying to use you. They're saying, let's find tools so that we can regain our own autonomy of mind. And brother, if we can do that, then that's how we get through this. It really is, Grant. It's how we get through it. Well, no one's uh, fighting harder than you and Rusty, mate. So more power to you. And uh, and again, thanks for thanks for taking time to do this. I always enjoy these conversations so much, and they're incredibly valuable. So thank you. Thank you, Grant. Bye now. Take care. Well, thanks to Ben there for another just fabulous conversation. Um, I really do find these chats I have with Ben just so valuable. It's a different way of looking at things. It's uh, an incredibly well-informed and insightful way of looking at things. And uh, I hope you enjoy these as much as I do. That's it from me for another podcast. I'll be back again with another guest very soon. In the meantime, 
my thanks to you all for listening. Don't forget, uh, everything you want to read from Ben, you'll find at EpsilonTheory.com and Epsilon Theory uh, on Twitter. So please, if you don't follow Ben and Rusty, you're missing out. Give them a follow. Thanks again for listening. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Nothing we discussed during the narrative game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.